we wanted to bring up something that has been um, in our pastor's discussion, Haley and Kyle and I, when we are talking every week and just kind of thinking about what does our community need? What are people talking about? Uh, what's an important topic that if we just kind of batted it around a little bit, maybe it might help unwind some tensions, uh, make things a little bit more livable for people. And uh, what we've ended up talking about a lot lately is tensions. Life is often found in holding two things together that can seem opposites or opposed, but actually need each other. One that really is striking us lately is the tension between humility on one hand and self-worth or self-esteem on the other side. I think that these are two things that uh, that are definitely values f that hold our community together, right? Like we have a high value on humility. We talk about being a space that uh, is marked by a healthy sense of humor and humility, that we can laugh at ourselves, that we don't take ourselves too seriously, that we're ready to listen, quick to listen, slow to speak, as the proverb from the biblical tradition says. Uh, but then also we talk a great deal about emotionally healthy spirituality, something that's based in self-worth and not like obligation to a god who will hurt you if you don't follow the rules. Uh, we talk a lot more about the image of God being placed in all people, and that is what the basis of our faith comes from. So how do we hold those two things together? Because they can seem sometimes like they're opposed. How can we be quick to admit we're wrong or that we need help, that beautiful part of humility, never becoming arrogant or unteachable, but also have a strong and bold belief that we are not our worst mistakes or our worst victimizations, that we are deeply and fundamentally worthy of love. We're, we're already loved by God. We don't need to do anything to earn that. How do we hold those two things together? Because on the surface, they can seem to be somewhat opposed. Now, depending on who you are or how you grew up, how you were socialized, uh, whether you spent most of your life in America or somewhere else, all of these things, all of your, your gender identity, your racial identity, your cultural identity can uh, play into how this difficulty plays out, this tension of holding humility and self-worth and keeping those things in tension and not letting one disappear or not letting one run away with us. How you do that is going to depend on you. And what we wanted to do is talk a little bit about us, uh, Kyle and I, uh, as two of the pastors here, and then open this up and kind of see what are other people's experiences of holding these two things, two things together that can seem opposed. And then we hope to leave everybody with a few recommendations uh, for some prayers, some scriptures, some ideas that might be able to help us uh, hold that tension more readily. So Kyle, if I can invite you in here, um, how does this play out for you, uh, the holding the tension of humility and self-worth? You know, I think about this uh, season in my 20s where I was doing a lot of um, self-understanding and trying to think about who I was and rethink a lot of assumptions I had taken. And in that season, there was one part of who I am and this piece of me that was coming out as I was inviting other friends and other people in my life into conversation of like, where is a piece of me that maybe I am blinded to the impact it has around me? Um, and one of those things was I talk a lot. And this is this is true. I, I, I like to talk. You you had this long buildup, and then and then it gets to I talk a lot, and that is uh, exactly. that's it was just I, so perfect. I wanted to bring the example, and then 
But I was in this season in my mid twenties where I was talking to some people and trying to invite self-reflection. And one of those things was um, particularly being cognizant of me being a white man, of the spaces that I'm in, um, of dominating conversation, of uh, entering spaces where it felt like um, uh, my voice had an outsized um, uh, taking up too much space. And, and, and more importantly in that is not just taking up space, but not creating space for other people's voices there. And uh, I, I took this very uh, to heart and it felt really heavy to me. It felt um, like that's not the person I want to be. That's not the way I want to live. Um, and so I went through this season where every time I was at a party or I was at like a dinner with a group of people or at work and I would reflect afterwards and I had some friends that would even like, I would reflect with them um, where they were like, yeah, you you talked too much. Like you didn't leave space for other people there. You, you just dove right in. And I would feel this like wave of shame come over me. Like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe that I'm that person. I can't believe that I'm I'm somebody that uh, doesn't leave space for other people to, to bring to the table those Time right. That's certainly not the story you tell about yourself, right? You don't want to be that guy. No, I don't at all. Um, and so I, I then actually went through a, a period of my life where I would at every uh, situation I was in, I would actually like would really uh, fixate on this fact and and fixate on the shame that I felt when that happened. Uh, and so I would just not talk like I would go into situations and I would not speak up. I would let everyone else talk. And then maybe I would say uh, a little bit uh, towards the end of the conversation. But I was very cognizant of like, I'm just not going to talk because I understand that my my proclivity in the way that I've heard people in the past is talking too much to the point where you like my wife and other people be like, are you okay? You just didn't seem very engaged in that space. Um, and in this season, I was also doing counseling. Um, this is, you know, part of the reflection I was in. And I remember talking to my counselor about this and, and he, I was kind of feeding back a situation where I didn't say anything. I kind of stabbed, I'd like, didn't participate in what's happening. And he challenged me and to say, um, Kyle, I think, part of who you are is somebody who likes to talk. Now you need to be cognizant of it. You need to be understanding that that uh, can hurt and damage other people. But he's like the family you came from, the place that you were, being in one of those conversations where everybody's talking at the same time and the, the conversation's shifting topics because everybody's interrupting each other every four minutes is actually incredibly life-giving to you. And so you need to find spaces where that can be appropriate. People in your life that are not hurt when that things happen. And, and also figure out how you do bring your voice to the table. And it was this real challenge to balance these two parts of me, um, of him saying like, you don't um, really challenging me to say that, uh, it's, especially as, as there were some conversations in that world of like trying to uh, understand the difference between extrovert and introvert, um, that I had conversations with multiple extroverts in that space of like, there was almost some shame about being an extrovert because uh, you were hurting introverts because you weren't creating space for them. And the challenge that I felt in that space was holding this tension, this tension of honest self-awareness that me as someone who talks a lot is going to hurt other people if I'm not cognizant in creating space for them. That is real. I, that is something I need to bring to the table. However, I am still deeply loved and valuable as someone who talks so much. I need to find appropriate spaces for that. But internalizing shame or internalizing that this part of who I am, that I've been this way since I was two years old and I see it in my own kids now, 
to say that that part of me is bad and I need to suppress that is denying who I am and how God made me. And so there's this tension of both have this deep value of I'm somebody who talks a lot and that is a good thing. However, deep humility that I walk into spaces and if I don't carry humility about that fact and honesty about that fact, I will hurt other people. Yeah, I think that is so key. And it really, um, I think part of the reason we want to talk about tensions, this one in particular, um, is that that's not easily, um, that's not easily like communicated quickly, right? Like you can, you can say something that sounds really true, cutting the tension one way or the other. And maybe they do sound really true, but they sound true in some circumstances. And when we're talking about in general, it is really like they need each other. You can't cast off the one side for the other. And that just feels really true with what you just shared. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's to the point of Ben's question asking what were appropriate spaces. And that was a lot of it is trying to figure out. So with my brothers, it is, and my mm. father, it is appropriate. Uh, there's, there's this cultural framework about in-groups and families. There's monovocalic, which is, the, most people are monovocalic, which is you take turns talking and you say on the same subject until there's like, a corporate agreement that we're changing the subject. And then there's polyvocalic families, which is what my family was, which is there is no order of speaking. It is just whoever can get in. And usually it's just raising your voice and interrupting people is how you get your point. And there's also no consensus on the flow of conversation. If somebody has an interesting point, they'll take it in another way. And that's a really life-giving space. So I had to figure out who were people in my life that we had an yeah. agreement on polyvocalic way of doing it. So I found a couple of friends where that's the case. And I also got really good at naming it of like, of just saying, this is part of who I am. And also realizing very rarely was that a space where I'm at work. Very rarely was that not a space that uh, a place that where it's not a mutually agreed upon space. Um, but it, it, it's tough to try to figure out this balance because it's not, it's not, uh, there's no singular truth about what is okay for me in either place. It really is about me needing to walk through life in relationship to the people around me and figuring out what is okay. And then being quick to apologize when I realize I have taken up too much space. Mm, that's good, that's good. I'm appreciating uh, just with what you just shared, uh, a big part of your learning and your, and, and even like your, you know, going too far and then having to find your way back was a recognition of uh, privilege that you have because of being a man, because of being a white guy. And uh, I see in uh, in the chat, uh, Rebecca bringing in um, her examples for of her own life of the overlap of she has parts of her identities that uh, that it has to do with being marginalized, and then parts of her identity that has to do with being privileged. And when those things overlap, that's another example of like, on the parts of our identities that have privilege, chances are humility is something that we need to really lean, lean into. And yet none of us are one thing. We have many, many things that make up who we are. And so there are gonna be other parts of us that are a marginalized part or a part that has been wounded or hurt in some way, even if it's not societally, maybe we were wounded interpersonally. And in those ways, that's where we need to cling to that self-worth thing. We're holding both of them. We cannot let go of both of them. They need each other to exist. I, I'm curious, Vince, if anything comes to your mind when you think about your own life of trying to hold this tension between humility and self-worth. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, I, there's one memory that comes to mind really vividly for me with this is when um, I was teaching part-time for a test prep company. Um, and this was very early on in like my, my career post-college. 
but I, one of the things that I was doing is working lots of part-time jobs. And one of them was teaching part-time uh, because I couldn't find a full-time teaching job. And I was wondering whether I really wanted to do that for a living, even though that's what I went to school for. Uh, so the memory that sticks out during that time is uh, when a supervisor in my, uh, my, uh, the organization I taught for uh, was observing me. And after uh, the observation, I received some critical feedback. Uh, oh yeah, critical feedback. I, I'm sure we're, we've all been in such situations. We can imagine ourselves with our supervisors or maybe some sort of authority figure in your family or something like that, and you're getting critical feedback. It's, a, it's not a favorite position of anyone to be in. Um, so I look back on how I responded to that moment of receiving critical feedback, and I am, I was so immature. Like I, I recognize just how, um, how unable to hold the tension of humility and self-worth I was in that moment. So I was, uh, I was really defended uh, during this session of receiving feedback. I had absolutely convinced myself that I knew how to teach better than my supervisor will ever know uh, about how to teach kids. Uh, I didn't actually say anything to my supervisor or do anything to my supervisor because I'm a passive aggressive person. And so, uh, you know, like, of course, I wouldn't actually outright show it. But inside, I was just seething. I, you know, I, you know, it's, it's really almost like it, it, I feel more ashamed of like what was going on in my head because I, I was just sitting there judging this guy who was my supervisor, who was doing his job and doing his job well, honestly, as I look back. And, but I just, I was brittle. I was angry. I was belittling him in my head, you know, like he, he isn't a real teacher. He's a, he's a teacher at a test prep company. He doesn't know. And all of that to make myself feel better because I did not have the humility in that moment to receive critical feedback. And I was also not courageous enough to even show what I was feeling. I was just keeping it all inside. And I remember like, I, I remember just being like short and brittle, even with my wife later that day after that experience, because it had just, it was, I could not, I could not really like let that go. Of course, even though it sounds like I was self-assured in that moment, right? Like, and self-assurance can kind of sound like self-worth or kind of, it can kind of look like self-esteem on the outside, but like, it's obvious that these, these are attention, humility and self-worth because clearly my self-worth was extremely fragile, right? Like that's why I wasn't able to hear critical feedback in that moment because any amount of critical feedback might make me go into questions of like, oh my gosh, like, wait, no, I have to be good at this. Cause if I'm not good at this, who am I? I can't find a full-time teaching job. This is the best I can do right now. If I'm bad at this, who am I? Those are the kind of things that were going around in my head and I didn't know it at the time, but that's why I got so defended. And that I think shows just the way that those two, oh, they're, 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 they're connected. And I, have, I am unable to be humble in a moment of critical feedback because my self-worth is fragile. So, and then I think the interesting thing, the, like the final, like after this, like in, in the, the few days that, that, uh, that were after having that moment of receiving feedback and getting so defended and angry, I like flipped and I kind of became like the dog licking its wounds. And, you know, like may, maybe, maybe, maybe I am a bad teacher. Who am I really? And, you know, and so now I wasn't, you know, like pushing that away angrily. I was like trying it on for size and be like, oh crap, you know, like 
I, he's probably right, even though he never said, I'm a bad teacher. You know, that was never the, what was communicated to me, but that's what I heard because I wasn't able to hold that tension really well. So that's a really vivid memory for me that stands out. It's interesting because it seemed like there's almost a dependency on these two things because um, the humility to take feedback actually requires a level of high self-worth. And the whole yes. reason unable to receive the feedback is because in that moment, your self-worth felt very fragile. And then likewise, I think developing a deep sense of self-worth is the resilience to realize that I am still worthy and can receive uh, negative parts of who I am. In fact, to be the kind of people that we talk about uh, wanting to be in this community, people whose lives are deep and full and meaningful, there is this necessity to acknowledge that I have not arrived. Like the humility mm -hmm. to say, I need to grow more, but there's also this need for that to not, uh, acknowledging those moments not to be about um, taking ourselves down or internalizing the shame of who we are, but actually recognizing that we have a deep internalized sense of value and worth. And those two things have either a vicious cycle where they are feeding each other in a negative sense, or yes, yes. where they're supporting each other in a virtuous sense. Yeah. yeah, that seems dead on. You know, I think about uh, some some key distinctions that I've been, right now I've been doing a lot of reading and researching about uh, uh, classroom uh, climates, classroom cultures, and things that are set up to have kids succeed. And the thing that I'm shocked by is how much it's not just kids. It's like everything that comes like, do you know what sets up an eight-year-old to be successful? It's actually the same thing that sets up a 56-year-old to be successful. Sure. You know, and, and one of those things um, in one of those spaces is this idea that uh, we, we need to ourselves separate out the things that we do from who we are. Um, so mm. Carol Dweck talks about this in terms of uh, separating out, like, for example, how you did on a test from who you are as a student. Uh, Brene Brown mm. talks about this as separating out you, uh, your, your who, like the embarrassment of doing something wrong from the shame of who you are. Um, I think a lot about this, this balance that we're talking about here from the social science perspective is the separation of I sometimes do bad things, or I sometimes make mistakes, or I sometimes experience uh, bad things as the result of a broken society. However, those things are not who I am. Um, there's like a real separation of uh, I sometimes fail to test but I am not a failure. And I, that's this, I think a way to think about this balance, you have to acknowledge that you failed that test in order to grow and become a better student. You can't just pretend, oh no, I'm a great, I'm, I, that's like that, the teacher's just against me. Like there's a sense of like, I, did, I need to do something different, but also not internalize that piece of who you are. Because once you internalize it, it, it kind of freezes us from action because shame prevents us from moving forward. You know, this thinking about what we were talking about before with Rebecca talking about like the different parts of uh, of what make up your identity and really like we can, you know, we can talk about the layers that make up our identity socially, you know, we can talk about like the, the, the classic thing race, you know, uh, economic status and gender and you know all like we can talk about those things, but we can talk about all of the many like endless layers that can make up who we are and that can be an overwhelming thing in some ways because there's so much to you know like oh which part of me is activated right now that's a lot that 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 feels uh like i i need a lot of help to to navigate that or manage that so it can feel overwhelming but also with what you just 
what you just described, Kyle, it, it's actually an asset to us that we have a multi-layered identity because then we are less fragile. If we have an experience that is challenging or an experience that butts up against one of those identities, whether because we were a victim of something that was that we didn't deserve or because we failed or made a mistake in any way, if that part of our identity is hit, but we don't see that as our whole identity, we are less likely, I think, to go to that place where we think, oh, this is all of me. I am a failure or I am this victimized uh, person uh, after this terrible thing happened. We, we, we were spread out a little bit more uh, broadly. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I had a conversation earlier this week with my son um, as we were driving to, to somewhere and um, he's just reflecting on his life and the camp that he goes to at one point he talks about this one kid and he's like, yeah, he's a bad kid. And I'm, and I, I pause and I go, you know, where did you learn that? Like, where did you learn that he's a bad kid? Did somebody teach you that? Or did you, did you just come up with that? And he's like, well, I just thought about it. You know, there's, it's not that it's that he never listens was his whole thing. He's like, you know, there's kids at school that are good kid and bad kid. And I, I stopped him and I was like, you know, I don't think he is a bad kid. He, he made a bad choice. And people make bad choices for lots of reasons. They make bad choices because they're angry or they're sad or they're they're feeling things. And But making a bad choice doesn't mean that you're a bad kid. And I was like, this is important to me that you understand this because I don't want you to think you're a bad kid if you make a bad choice. And he's like, oh, like yesterday when I stole, when I snuck the Nutella, the day before he had taken the Nutella out and had I caught him in his room with spoonfuls of it. And I was like, yes, like yesterday when you snuck the Nutella, that was a bad choice, but you're not a bad kid. And he's like, I felt like a bad kid. And I was like, and that's why this is so important to me is that you need to, understanding that you are not a bad kid, but we all make bad choices. And it is also important to me that we think about that for other people because you know how bad you felt yesterday when you felt like a bad kid we never want to be part of making other people feel that way you know and so we go silent for like 15 minutes and we're just driving my kids do this thing like raise your hand if you like ice cream and then everyone raised their hands and he's sitting in the back he goes raise your hand if you think everybody's a bad kid and i look back and he's like i can raise my hand raise your hand if you think everybody makes mistakes and he like raises his hand and he's like this and i was like I, I can't imagine how many of us need to internalize that message as adults. Right. How many of us need to figure out that there is this real separation of who I am and, and both the choices we make, but also the systems we participate in um, that I think is a really important thing for us to, to juggle those things. Definitely, definitely. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm loving the amount of uh, engagement we're getting in the chat too. This is great because I think where we want to take this um, in terms of discussion for today and, and where we hope it just kind of sits in your minds and hearts for the rest of the week is recognizing that, you know, th this is a, this is a universal struggle, but not always for the same reason, right? Like we're, we're all going to, uh, you know, sometimes uh, depending on who we are, or, you know, like we've said, like the different uh, identity layers that make up who we are we might edge toward one side or the other and, and you know, having more difficulty pulling in this one or having more difficulty pulling in this one. It might flip get season to season, right? Like, you know, based on what we're experiencing or what's going on around us. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that is where, that is where 
it's really, really important for us to remind ourselves of the value of, of thinking about this like attention and not like a, you know, one size fits all here is the thing that's going to fit every person. Because when we, when we do that, we are in danger of taking what has worked for us uh, to help us hold the tension and paste it onto somebody else who maybe needs the opposite thing. Who's maybe like, oh, like, you know, like I'm actually in a place where uh, you know, like the stories that we shared earlier, Kyle, are all around these like inflated senses of self-worth, right? Like I deserve to be listened to was your story. And I, you know, I'm the greatest teacher ever and nobody can tell me what to do is my story. And, you know, that so in, in those cases, we needed a healthy dose of humility. And and yet there are other situations like if we just decide that's what everybody needs. Well, what if somebody is on the humility side right here where that they don't actually struggle with that, but the real challenge in their life at this season, given this moment is actually finding that self-worth and, and truly getting to that point where it's like, you know what, like I am not my worst victimizations. I am not my worst mistakes. It is not a matter of me owning something I did wrong right now. I actually, I actually need to stand up for myself. And so that's where this becomes so important that we always need to talk about them in tandem. They need each other. Well, I mean, to me, this is like, I, I've said this in the past, which this is the, if you want to have a single tool to read the Bible well, it's holding this in that the Bible is speaking humility to those who experience exaltation or Jesus, humble the exalted, exalt the humble. Or you, exaltation might be another way to think about privilege. You might think about uh, where you stand. But if you want to read the lens that it is speaking humility to those who have power and privilege, and it is speaking a deep validation and a deep uh, sense of worth communicated to those who are humbled in society. This is the story time and time again, and this is where I think one of the core sources of misinterpretation of the Bible is people like suburban white American Christians taking passages directed at marginalized people groups yes. and speaking to themselves where yes. that is not addressed to them. And that's part of this tension is existing, realizing that when society is always pulling you in one direction towards humility, that God is needing to speak towards that self-worth. That mm. this isn't like a perfect, we don't walk a perfect balance of this, but there's a real sense of needing to understand that what God has for me is to build me up. And then for those of us that exist on the side of society that I think you and I exist on as white straight men, I think that there's a real sense of like, a lot of our life experience needs to be founded in humility. Now, that humility can't erode our own sense of worthiness because that's actually not going to help things, but that humility needs to be internalized again and again and in many ways erode the fragileness of identity that's found in privilege and realizing mm. that actually by letting go of power, I'm actually made richer rather than the fragility of needing to hold on to it. Mm. I want to. I want us to turn in a moment to um, some ideas about like what it, what are ways that can really help us uh, hold this tension, just as we kind of unpack all of the different layers of it. But there's so many things that have come in the chat, and I'm wondering, Jen, if I can activate you here because I, I can't follow it myself. I'm curious. Uh, we we've hit a couple of the things that have come up, but is there anything else that has come up in the chat that feels worth surfacing here, Jen? Oh my gosh, yeah, so much good stuff. Um, I know Brittany talked about um her all of her identity um all three of her identities being marginalized and what a struggle mm. that is um and i loved kezia's reply um of uh you know for for those of us in uh people in Brittany's life uh it's a challenge for us to you know hold more space and uh uh 
she shouldn't bear the responsibility of advocating. Yeah. Right. You know, um, I love Ben's comment, um, flipping between extreme defensiveness and groveling in shame. I think that. Oh is- my God. That's, that's totally my story from, <laughs> from years ago when I was teaching. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And then Brittany, Brittany wrapped this up. I loved how she wrapped this up. Um, she said, um, my marginalization creates space for, for other people to rethink too. So I wear it as a badge sure. of honor. And I yes. love, so cool. Um, and then Erica, um, her experience, um, she said she struggles with a, the balance of humility and self-worth because she's having, um, used to having to defend her position, especially mm. within her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's afraid to admit if she's wrong or that she still needs to figure some things out that she'll lose credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, then it starts to open the door for all of her opinions or decisions to be questioned, um, which just breeds more defensiveness and shame. So, Oh my gosh, that I'm sorry. That's so tough. Like, a terrible oh, thing, you know, that's a really important one um, that I, I think be, because we've, uh, as we've talked about, maybe like some, um, those different layers of identity and how those will each be activated in different ways on this, on this tension of humility and self-worth. That was pretty good, right? I got some good, got some good movement there. I just realized like looking on camera, I was like, that looked good. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Get some humility, Vince, calm it down. Uh, The, the, holding that tension is one thing when we're talking about um, identities that come from our social positioning. It's another thing when we talk about, um, say, professional relationships, but it is yet another thing when we talk about family. I really think that family is one of the ways that we are least actually like able to step back and reflect and see the dynamics at play because they're so they're so background, right? Like we are we are the fish swimming in water that doesn't even realize like what water is, right? Like that is so difficult with family stuff. There's no one I more quickly default back to my like old uh, defensive patterns with than my sisters like it just it, it it's immediate when i'm talking to them and so I, I think that that that's that's really important to just highlight as erica said and i don't know if we have you know like magic fixes for these anything for any of these things but i do think that's a really important dynamic to be aware of that you're probably not even none of us are probably even aware of the different dynamics that play out in our families and where we need more humility and where we need more self-worth because it's so complicated you know, the thing I, I think about here is trying to figure out, you know, like my, my earlier story, what are the spaces where we can actually uh, be seen and validated? I'm, I'm thinking about the conversation between Austin Channing Brown and Brene Brown, um, where Brene Brown's all about, in order to live a full life, you need to embrace humility. I mean, uh, what she would, this conversation on her terms, rather vulnerability. than yeah. self-worth and uh, humility would be vulnerability and uh living with belonging or yeah wholehearted yeah Mm -hmm. and that the enemy there is shame and she's had some really interesting conversations and and i think some honest uh admittance that vulnerability is not an equal playing field in our society and what austin channing brown as a black woman talked about how a vulnerability uh is just not the same thing for her Mm. in terms of the way society receives her uh that any level of vulnerability or humility shown is in some ways a credit to continue to not listen to her. Mm-hmm. And so to me, and what, part of what the, the, the conversation around there is, uh, you're right, it's probably not going to be a safe space. And that's what Brene Brown talks a lot about, people who have earned your vulnerability, 
people who have shown themselves to be trustworthy of earning their vulnerability. And in the same space, I don't think showing humility and showing that sense in, in a lot of spaces that have, have systematically not earned the right to do that, that's not what we're calling for here. Probably in those settings, an, out, an oversized validation of self-worth is what is going to be needed to counteract the broken parts of our society. Mm. However, I think we all need places that are safe, that have earned the trust for us to let ourselves down and be humble and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about this. But if where we exist in society, I think it is different when we're actually out in workplaces, when we're actually out in places uh, that, that are, are not going to see us and that humility is actually going to be seen as a validation or permission in some ways to, to disregard worth that our society has not held up the same. And, but I think it's about finding those places where that can be safe and then protecting yourself with boundaries in the spaces where that's not safe. And I, I think that that's, that's going to be part of the journey that we all have to wrestle through is trying to figure out where those spaces are. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, it's, I think we should just kind of continue on that train where we're starting to talk about like what, what are what are uh, realities that can really help us. And so as you're encouraging us, Kyle, finding the right spaces for where we can have that self-worth built up is, is extremely important because again, these need each other. If we want to be able to be humble in the situations that rightly call us to be humble or vulnerable, we have to have our self-worth built up and vice versa. Um, I, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, just kind of connected with this, um, uh, Elizabeth's last comment, um, in the chat of it, she, she's kind of encouraging us against false humility, which is a great, I think, distinction to make uh, just, just like we were talking about how self-assurance on the outside can look like self-worth, but it's really just like being, you know, inflating your ego, you know, being blustery, trying to look like more than you are. Likewise, false humility is not going to help us, right? Like that's going to degrade the self-worth. Uh, instead of instead of allowing us to actually build ourselves up with a real humility. And she speaks to how important that is for her to kind of figure out that balance as a black woman in leadership in a predominantly white male organization. I mean, false humility is is not what is called for in those situations. And I love that you're you're bold enough, Elizabeth, to kind of throw that out there into in, in, into our conversation here, because I think that's exactly right. Um, what else, Kyle, if like um, we we uh, batted around a few ideas of just like uh, prayers or scriptures or, or spiritual um, uh, kind of things we can go back to patterns that we can try to live by that might be able to speak to us here and help. Yeah, so so I, have, I do have a few like scriptures and things to think about, but I think there's one piece here where this has lived out pretty profoundly for me that I think particularly for the white people that are listening to this to hear, which is addressing issues of systemic racism and the realities of racial injustice that exist in our country that uh that this is a this is where some of this tension i think really has high stakes so on one end of the tension is white people that are are not willing to do the humility of recognizing that we we participate in a system that is innately racist. Uh, and so the humility in us is what my, the lack of humility in many white people is to say, well, I'm not doing anything racist. I'm not racist. I don't think that way. I think true humility would call us to say we participate in a system that is racist. 
and we need to acknowledge that and get good at narrating for ourselves the way that that, that system advantages us and that that's not okay. Uh, like I'm more likely to be able to find my next apartment because I am white. We know that's true. And anecdotally, just walking in and having people see me and be like, you look like a great tenant. And I was like, I think that's code for you're white. Um, and I think that, that that's a true thing. But at the same time, it is equally as unproductive when white people manifest the emotions of guilt and shame about the brokenness of the society. So I'm white. I feel no, I don't feel ashamed for being white. I don't feel guilty about being white. I had no agency in this world about being white. I am loved by God. God sees me and cares for me. I am valuable. My self-worth is not at risk by acknowledging the impact of systemic racism. That, and this is one of those things too, is we showing up with guilt or shame in conversations around race as a white person is actually undermining the conversations in many ways. We need to acknowledge what is true. And in many ways, being solid in my own value allows me to be that much more critical and that much more honest about a, about a system that advantages me and is broken. And, but if I'm if I feel fragile, like I feel shame and guilt, I feel bad. First of all, it's super, if nothing feels as cringeworthy, I think is often to people that are trying to do that work when white guilt shows up in that space. But secondly, it changes the conversation from the brokenness of the system to the emotions of that person. It's about maintaining that, I, am I still okay, even though I'm white? And I think that that's, this is an important tension to hold if you are somebody with privilege that is committed to justice. Mm, that sounds hard to do. And if this is if this is something that you are relatively new to engaging those feelings or, uh, you know, figuring out what what does it mean to hold that balance? If you are are, are somebody who is 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 uh, is able to acknowledge that, like, yes, I participate in a racist system. I am racist just by virtue of being an American. Um, I think figuring out, um, you know, working on those spaces, working on those those long-standing truths or past experiences that make it so hard for you to find self-worth, every bit of work that you do there will allow you to stand more firmly on two feet when you're saying, I am still lovable, deeply, you know, like foundationally a worthy person, and I can be somebody who participates in racism at the same time. So that is, uh, that is, that is a, a strong call. I, I, I pulled um, a few things, two, two things I'll say quickly, and then if, if we have time, we can go to the third one. But I wonder what you think about these first two, Kyle, because they're, they're, they're briefer. Um, one is a, it, it's a, it's a very obscure uh, scripture from uh, the Old Testament uh, in, in Proverbs. And uh, I, it was, this proverb was taught to me as uh, something that you pray over yourself. Proverbs is like all of these, you know, like sayings that are, that are, you know, they're wisdom sayings that, you know, like if, if, if you're in the right circumstance, boy, that really feels true. And I find myself, this is like one of maybe like the scriptures that I quote to myself more than any other scripture, because I find myself praying it over myself after I learned this. So the, the proverb is, uh, if you want to look it up yourself, it's Proverbs 26, two. And, uh, and the, the, uh, the scripture is this, it's like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow. So you're imagining like a, you know, like, oh, it, oh where, where's it gonna land? Where's it gonna land? Where's it gonna land? An undeserved curse does not come to rest. 
right? Like that, like that frenetic movement of, of a bird. If it lands for a second, it just quickly jumps away and goes to the next place. And what I, the, the reason I pray that, or, or I was taught to pray that over myself is like, how often do we experience uh, this phrase, undeserved curse, or like somebody judging us, somebody presuming something about us, or somebody, you know, engaging in some sort of behavior that degrades us, or somebody just saying something to us that was thoughtless or careless, and maybe they don't even realize the impact that it had on us, but it hurt us. How often do we experience those undeserved curses? I experience them all the time, I feel like. I feel like that's a regular occurrence. And what I find myself praying in those moments is that this proverb would be would become true because it doesn't feel true in the moment. It feels like that is not a darting sparrow or a you know a, a fluttering swallow. It's like a it's like an anvil and it's just like weighing on my back. It it doesn't move around at all. It's not frenetic at all. It stays right there and just weighs me down. But if I can make that undeserved curse a swallow, it will just oh it'll land for a second and then it'll disappear and it'll go on and I don't have to carry that any longer. And so I just I, I pray that over myself when I feel like overly vulnerable when I feel feel humbled in 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 a space where I do feel like that that's a threat to me and it's and it's one of those situations where I really need to cling to self worth. Uh, maybe this is one of those places where that you feel um, if we're thinking about those family situations or we're feeling about uh, the uh, a situation where we where we recognize we're a marginalized person in a society that doesn't see us or doesn't have a space for us at the table. This is a prayer that can be useful there or any just interpersonal situation where you just feel hurt. I just I, I pray this one over myself all the time, like a fluttering sparrow an undeserved curse will not come to rest. I, I always I always add on my shoulder. It will not land on my shoulder because I just imagine a bird, you know, sitting here and then flying away, sitting here and then flying away. It's not going to land on my shoulder. It's not going to stay there. Um, so I submit that one out there uh, for for thought. And then the other one that comes to my mind um, briefly is uh, we, we've prayed a number of prayers written by Cole Arthur Riley, who is the author of uh, uh, At Black Liturgies on uh, Instagram. And the reason I pull her into this is because she has a way of writing prayers that capture tensions. Uh, all of her, her prayers are, very, are uh, often around the, uh, the refrain of an inhale and an exhale. And she releases uh, prayers regularly on Instagram. If you just follow her, you'll see them show up in your feed. And they always just have this beautiful grabbing of tensions. And, uh, and I think often the tension that we're talking about today, humility and self-worth. On the inhale and on the exhale, we are grabbing those two sides and holding them together. And I just love that. So I, th I think she's, she's a brilliant writer that can help us learn how to live in tensions. Yeah, I, I think I like both of those. And I think the, the, the one about um, the, the curse not landing, I think the reason why that feels so uh, meaningful is I think the greatest thing that erodes our sense of self-worth are the, the voice in our own head that is grabbing on to the things that we heard and like the, the, the depth of time I can go back and remember a thing that somebody said that hit me right at the core of my, my own self-worth and that it's just sitting there with me and then it's validating those moments that I'm questioning who I am. Um, I think to have some real, uh, an actual practice to do to let go of those things that are not true I think is an incredibly concrete and helpful thing that is even, has helped me in this process. Um, I think I think in this to me is uh, the most helpful thing I do is is trying to create space to just receive 
a sense of how much God loves me. So the, the, I do this in a few different ways. That's not a, a singular one, but often it's through just creating quiet. Um, sometimes it's a candle, sometimes it's in the context of a bath, but it's just about having no agenda and just trying to sit with uh, myself and asking God to just, to just love me and receive that love. Because I think to me, there's a real sense of like, whether it's all of a sudden you get fixated on things about your physical body, like I'm, I'm, I'm fatter than I wanna be, or you think about like your professional life, all the things that like swirl through your head, or you sit there and you, you're thinking about what, what's going on. It's all those moments of quiet that are usually filled with all of that junk. Trying to, to it's almost like stealing those moments and, and filling them with experiences of love and care for myself. And so what I do is whenever there's anything that pops in my head um, that feels validating of who I am, I just thank God for it. Oh, thank you, God. Like there's a real sense of like practicing being loved um, in those spaces. And someone may ask like, how do I know that's God communicating versus me? In this case, I don't think it matters at all. Whether it is me sitting there being like, I am awesome and loved, even if it's like God is like not, I believe God is in that innately because God is in all of us and, and is there for the edification of who we are. And so figuring out who is the origin of that thought, I think is actually secondary, whether God initiated it or God participated with it once we initiated with it, I think the validation is still the same. And so building in that practice of self self-worth because then once I have that self-worth I'm able to be more critical of myself and not have it erode me once I know I am just loved and cared for then I can be honest about the parts of me that need to grow because I, my sense of love is not as fragile oh, I love this I love this I think there's uh there's lots of um lots of open boxes where we leave this today I think as we come to a close which is good it, it seems like there are there, there's a, there's, there's more tensions that uh, th this begs the question about, and so I'm curious to see where we go next as a church and the, the following conversations. But it was great to have everybody's participation uh, in today's uh, discussion. And good, we were really hoping uh, uh, that we would uh, be able to talk about uh, different examples of how this plays out for different people in different positions in society and different, you know, kinds of relationships in your lives. Uh, this is super useful to, uh, to uh, have a mixed bag of experiences represented. Uh, well, Kyle, as we close up, could you pray for us as we come to the end of today's discussion? Yeah, well, look, we just invite um, this tension into our heart right now. <clears throat> but I, I ask for a deep sense of worthiness and belonging right now. That we would all know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are each made in the image of God, that we have the divine spark within us, that each of us here is worthy of love and belonging. That I pray right now that you would validate that within us, that our mistakes, that our poor choices, our areas of brokenness that have been put upon us by a society that is broken, are not who we are. We are loved and valued. And those of us who just need to sit in that space and not leave it because the context of the world around them is already pressing a, a broken sense of humility upon them, a false sense of humility. Uh, I just, I ask that we would be able to sit there for as long as we need to. 
those of us that are looking um, to, to grow into more, that do have a sense of needing to grow beyond ourselves right now, those of us who exist in a, in a, a space where we uh, tend to run from, hide from, or feel like our self-worth is at risk when we acknowledge the, the places we need to grow, acknowledge the broken spots. I pray that you would bring peace there, that you'd bring an honesty and a fearlessness to the honesty about the parts of me that fall short, a fearlessness to the honesty about the parts of our society that fall short, and that that grounding of identity would allow us to be deeply humble people that are aware that we don't understand all, that we need to learn, that we need to see and identify the things that we have done that need change. And we ask for your help and care in that and your help in holding that tension. Amen.